the Commentary on the Gospel of Matthew podcast is a verse-by-verse study with Torah Resource President and Instructor Tim Haig. These audio sessions were recorded over a three-year period during Shabbat services at Beit Hillel, located in Tacoma, Washington. As I've said before, um, I hope you don't weary of the tedious way that we're making our way through this first chapter. As I finished the notes this morning and started copying them off, uh, I realized, you know, uh, I think what we made it through verse 10. And I thought, oh boy, people are just going to think, you know, this is going nowhere fast. You're right, it's going nowhere fast, but hopefully it's going somewhere. Uh, but, but, I would, but I would hasten to say the first chapter is tough. It's really tough. Um, as, I, as I studied this and continue to study it, and I'm sure you feel the same way as you read it, you feel like you have just entered back in again into an ancient text that is mysterious. I mean, you're dusting it off, as it were, for the first time because it speaks in language we're not used to hearing. It does things that, that are not quite on par with our modern sensitivities. Um, we have a different way of looking at history than the ancient man did. And uh, so it's going to be easy for us to say, well, you know, Matthew just <laughs> had his facts wrong. It's just obvious. He just doesn't know what he's talking about. But, you know, ancient man was not so concerned about what happened as they were concerned about why it happened. I mean, it was evident. Some things were evident, right? I mean, it's evident that you have this earth here. And up until the time of the Byzantine era, uh, no one ever thought of anything but that God created. So, I mean, you could never deny God because you can see the world that he created. It was just that obvious. Well, the people that uh, wrote the Gospels had seen Yeshua. And they were not asking these these insane questions that modern theologians are asking, like, was there a historical Jesus? They weren't asking those questions. They ate with him. They walked with him. They slept with him. They taught with him. They listened to him. They touched him. Their hands held him, as John said, right? Their eyes beheld him. They saw his miracles. They watched people raised from the dead. They saw people come alive. They saw people healed of diseases. They saw with their own eyes. There was no question in their mind whatsoever about the historical Jesus. Here he was, the promised one. And they beheld him. And they loved him. And they died for him. They weren't idiots. They weren't people that were all of a sudden taken over by some ideology that they thought was the newest thing in town. No, no, no. They had seen the Messiah. And so the gospel that we study comes across with that. If you, if you listen, if you don't just read it like another dry piece of literature, but if you read it, you, you see and you hear the very words of our Messiah coming through. And Peter could say in his epistle, whom having not seen, whom having not seen, we love. You know, we haven't seen him with our physical eyes. And, for those, and, and as created beings, physicality is an important issue. 
When we see something, when we hold something, when it's tactile, it has more reality to us than when we don't see it and when we don't touch it. That's why faith is so difficult because faith, well, maybe, I don't know, do you think faith is difficult? I do. Maybe I'm, you know, uh, I will admit that there are times when I say, Lord, I believe, but please help my unbelief. You know, Um, I think faith is difficult. I think faith is a challenge. God gives us faith, but he expects us to increase it. I think faith is difficult because we'd like to hold on to it. We'd like to see it. We'd like to touch it. You know, seeing is believing. Is that true? Better not be whom having not seen we love. We believe he is there. We believe that he is with us. We believe that he lives today and that he's coming again. So in the tangle of this opening genealogy, don't become discouraged. No one has all the answers. And certainly I'm at the top of that list of people who don't have answers for the genealogy issues that go on here. But I I just want to reiterate again, Matthew did not pull this out of thin air. He just didn't sit down and say, well, let's make up some names here. I mean, that's not, no way. The people that he was writing to were too well versed in, in, in the Tanakh to have been just, you know, passed by by made-up names. He didn't make up his, his genealogy, neither did Luke. Okay, they're divergent. We don't know how to fit them all together. The puzzles don't, uh, pieces don't seem all to fit, but we believe that somehow they must fit, and we just don't have enough information. Well, let's see what information we can find. If you turn to page 21, I just want to reiterate what's going on in this chart again. Um, whether this chart is helpful or not, I don't know. I've used it already a few times, and it's at least been helpful. I haven't had to go leafing through my Bible to find uh, who comes after what in what text. But um, as we noted the last class period, and by the way, this is uh, I'm supposed to do this every time. This is class number three, so that when we're editing this tape or this uh, audio file, we'll remember what class it was. This is class number three of Matthew in chapter one. Um, if you look on page 20, you'll see that Luke, starting with Nathan, is grayed in the column. And uh, that's because it's at that point that, that Luke and Matthew no longer agree in terms of the names that they list. You'll notice in the First Chronicles column on page 20 that Joash has three plus marks after it, which tells you that even in the Chronicles there are some generations of kings left out at that point. And now we find the same thing going on in Matthew, as we'll see. All right, so... Uh, other comments, uh, the last column is the Hebrew Matthews. What do I mean by that? Uh, to date, they have discovered three manuscripts of late extraction, 13th and 14th century, that are the Gospel of Matthew in the Hebrew language. Are these translations from the Greek or from the Latin? Some would say yes, some would say no. As we, as we noted in the first class period, there's good historical evidence amongst the church fathers that Matthew was known in the early centuries as having been written in Hebrew. Okay, so we, it's not beyond the possibility that one of these three manuscripts that they found has some connection to an, to an earlier Matthew. And some scholars think that's the case. So, I've been interested in those, and so as we go along, I will be making comments about where those manuscripts differ or agree with the general Greek manuscripts. Um, And just one point of uh, clarification on that. 
those of you that have taken the course uh, how we got our Bible would be familiar with this language. But generally, the Greek manuscripts from which we translate the book of Matthew can be divided very, very generally into two camps. Okay, One is called the critical text and one is called the majority text. The critical texts are those um, manuscripts which is generally, I'm saying very generally, are 5th century and earlier. The majority manuscripts are those which are 8th and 9th century and later. Now, why is it called the majority? Because there's a whole lot more of those than there are of the earlier manuscripts. So the earliest manuscripts are in the minority. What do we find uh, between the, the critical text and the, and the majority text? The majority text, the later text, is what was used for the King James Version. So it's the Texas Receptus. What we discover in the majority text is that oftentimes the scribes are making a lot of corrections of problems and issues that they see from the earlier texts. Most of your newer translations, like the New American Standard or the NIV or the ESV or the RSV, the new RSV, all of these have been translated from the earlier manuscripts as having a priority over the later manuscripts. So that's why you'll find some differences in, in even what is being, um, uh, you know, whole sections are apparently left out, it looks like. If you read the King James Version a lot and then you go read the NASB, you'll see sometimes you'll even see in the New American Standard Bible, it'll say you know, verse such and such is not in the earliest manuscripts. Okay. Well, so I have tried to take into consideration the differences between these various groupings or families of manuscripts as we've gone along. And um, in some cases, then, uh, I've seen how the uh, Hebrew uh, manuscripts parallel these. For instance, in the Hebrew Matthew's column, if you look down on page 20 to where, where Jotham is, Matthew has Jotham, uh, some manuscripts say uh, uh, Joatham, and uh, uh, Luke has Judah or Judas, uh, First Chronicles has Joash, and Hebrew Matthew says Jotham, but then I say L-A-C- dot in s tov <laughs> so that's my little abbreviation that means lacunae that means it's not it's missing or the or the line is blank in the uh, shem tov matthew so that, that that gives you so you have shem tov is one of the matthews and dutelay is another one of the matthews and the munster is the third matthew so those are just so you know you, you read those and say well i haven't got a clue what he's talking about well I, it's not necessary that you do but those of you that would like to know maybe now you do all right, um, bottom of page 21, it's clear from a comparison with the genealogy of the chronicler, that is, First and Second Chronicles, that his material or versions of it were used by the gospel writers for the construction of the early part of their list. How do we know this? Well, because the way that the Greek spell the names is different in, in different parts of the Septuagint. And invariably, Matthew follows the spelling of Chronicles. So apparently he was aware of the Septuagint translation of Chronicles as he was making his list for the genealogies. Where there were clearly generations left out by the Gospel writers, I've indicated this by using the sign of the plus. In the Hebrew Matthew column, I've noted Shem Tov and Deutelay. Um, 
notice that Dutele has added a name. So if you go in uh, on page 20 and you go down from the bottom, count up one, two, three, four columns, you'll see it's blank in all of the columns except in the Hebrew Matthew. He adds the word, uh, the name Avner, and therefore he fixes the problem so that it's 14, 14, 14 instead of 14, 14, 13. So, I mean, he obviously is trying to fix the problem and he puts Avner in there. But you, here's the issue. Say, well, look, that must mean that that manuscript is the most accurate because, no, 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 not necessarily. And here's one of the axioms that we use when we're looking at manuscripts. The most difficult reading is, in many cases, the original reading. Can you figure out why? It will be the tendency of scribes to fix what they see as a problem. Now, if it's an obvious problem, like a line's been left out or, or you know, a word's been transposed or something, that, that's different. But if it's a more difficult reading, you know, in other words, these scribes were not, were not stupid. They were the, they were the trained uh, men of their, of their time. So if, if Matthew says there's three, there's 14 and 14 and 14, and the scribes see a, a series that only has 13 names, what are they going to do? Well, they know there's 13 names. If you and I could figure out there's 13, they could figure out there was 13. Why didn't they fix it? Because that wasn't their job, or it wasn't supposed to be their job. Their job was to copy the manuscript the way they found it. So generally speaking, a difficult reading is probably more original. And and here's another issue that we come to in, in this whole issue of biblical studies and hermeneutics. Look, when we come to a problem in the text, it doesn't mean we should not first think there's a mistake. That's, I know, modern, you know, and you all, and please, I never, I never uh, cringe about this. Uh, I, I know there's typos in my stuff, so when you all come and tell me, yeah, I found a typo or I found a misused word or something, I'm, I'm grateful. You know, I'll fix it and, and, and hopefully it won't bug the next person. But, um, uh, there's always mistakes. And our modern, our modern perspective is let's find the mistakes. That was not the ancient perspective. I mean, I was, as I was studying today, I, 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 even in the Hebrew text and the Masoretic text, the same name in two verses following each other are spelled differently. Now, any scribe reading that would say, oh, he spelled it this way here and he spelled it a different way there. I'll just fix it and, and do this. No, 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 you can't do that. You're not there to fix the manuscript. You're there to copy it. And so that was faithfully copied for thousands of years. Just exactly that way. Spelled one way in, in one verse and a different way in the next verse. Didn't bother the ancient person. That wasn't the, that wasn't the issue. So the first thing we should do when we see what, what, what appears to be a problem or is a problem in the text is we should ask, what does that mean? Why would, why would that have happened? Rather than saying, oh boy, this guy doesn't know what he's saying. Uh, it's obvious, number four, bottom of 21, it's obvious that Matthew and Luke are essentially identical up to King David. Matthew continues on his genealogy with Solomon while Luke carries on from Nathan, two sons of David. It is at this point that the two gene- genealogies diverge, and I've grayed out the one column so that you can see that. Obviously, the variants extant in the Greek manuscripts are not noted in this table. There's just too many. I have ever included parentheses, some variant spellings indicated via English. Okay, so maybe that helps you to uh, understand that table a little more and use it in the future. Now, have any of you worked on the genealogy issue with Yeshua? Have any of you figured it out? I know uh, Judy brought the big chart. Maybe that's maybe they've got it all figured out on that. I I don't know. I, I, I saw that and, and when I was in seminary and thought, man, somebody must have spent a lifetime making that chart. Okay, so 
we're going to attempt. But attempting to reconcile the two genealogies has caused many scholars to draw the conclusion that it is impossible. It may well be impossible for us to reconcile the two different approaches of Matthew and Luke, but this should not be taken to mean that one of the two gospel writers is wrong. It is more likely that we simply do not have sufficient data to assess the different, the two different genealogies. Moreover, there seems to be a similar divergence in the rabbinic literature. Lax in his commentary notes that the Targum to Zechariah 12.12 includes both the house of David, apparently through Solomon, and the house of Nathan as those who mourn. And Lax says, I caught a mistake in his commentary. He says Zechariah 1.12, but he means 12.12. The two-line descent of the Davidic kings is not unknown to the Jewish tradition. You understand what I'm saying here? I mean, uh, uh, Matthew has Yeshua coming through Solomon, right? Luke has Yeshua coming through Nathan. Guess what? The rabbis seem to have similar issue. The two-line descent of the Davidic kings is not unknown to Jewish tradition. The Targum to Zechariah 12.12 implies this, and the descendants of the house of David mourn, presumably from Solomon, and the descendants of the house of Nathan. Now, I don't know, have you ever seen this? Have you ever pondered this? I know when I taught through uh, Zechariah, I, I didn't even, it, it didn't even dawn on me. But if you have your Bibles, turn to Zechariah uh, 12. And, you know, we're, we're right in that section, which is, uh, which even in the, by the early rabbis was uh, interpreted as having, as pertaining to the coming of Messiah. Look at verse 10. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him. Now notice the change of the pronouns. They will mourn for him as one mourns for only a son for an only son and they will weep bitterly over him like the weep, bitter weeping over a firstborn. In that day there will be great mourning in Jerusalem like the mourning of Hadramon in the plain of Megiddo. The land will mourn every family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the Shemites by itself and their wives by themselves. All the families that remain, every family by itself and their wives by themselves. Now, why does Zechariah pick those four? I hadn't thought of it, really, until I started working on these genealogies. And David Barron gives us uh, uh, his insights. The prophet Zechariah, after noting that Israel will mourn for the pierced one, delineates four families, David, Nathan, Levi, and the Shemites. Baron notes that these four family names contain two of the royal and two of the priestly line. David is the primary royal family with Nathan subordinate, while Levi is the primary priestly family with the Shemites being subordinate. In this way, the entire nation is represented by her kings and priests, and thus the nation as a whole is mourning. The point for our concern in regard to the genealogy of Yeshua is that the family of Nathan appears to be connected to the royal line of David. And so Luke is onto something here. He didn't get it. He didn't make it up. He, he apparently got it from Zechariah and maybe some other information that he had. Now, in the next page, uh, I've I've given you the suggestions by Daryl Bach. Daryl Bach is a, is an eminent scholar in our day, uh, evangelical eminent scholar down from uh, Dallas Theological Seminary. Um, I know Buzz and Judy know Daryl. You can always tell if Daryl's around because you just have to stop to listen for that laugh. 
I mean, that guy, this, this, this uh, Dr. Bach has a laugh that is like no one else's, and you always, and he loves to laugh, so he's, he's a great guy, good scholar. And in his commentary on Luke, he gives these, uh, these explanations that some scholars have given for how do we fit all these together. Let me sum it up because we don't have time for me to explain. The general uh, notions have been, one, that uh, Luke gives the genealogy of Mary and Matthew gives the genealogy of Joseph. Bach uh, doesn't think that flies, and after reading his arguments and several others, I agree, I don't think that flies. And here's why, because Luke doesn't even end with Mary. If he were actually giving the genealogy of Mary, you would expect Luke to (laughs) end with Mary. He doesn't. He doesn't even mention her at the end. So, but that, that's one of the explanations. Another uh, explanation, and this probably has more substance, and that is that there were Leverite marriages that went on that are not recorded in the scriptures. Granted, that's speculative, but it is, is very possible. For instance, if the, if the family of Solomon, if there was a, uh, uh, a son who died and his widow had no children, one of his brothers would perform the duty of a Leverite. Well, what if one of those brothers was from the family of Solomon? Then you would have the connecting of the family of Nathan and the family of Solomon in, in, a, in a Leverite marriage. And so numbers of scholars have tried to work out how these genealogies would mesh together if there had been a kinsman redeemer uh, once or twice or maybe three times down through the genealogies. And I I list that for you uh, in in these. It gets kind of technical, so I didn't want to spend all that time. Look at the bottom of page. Uh, 23. In the end, we must admit that the reconciliation of the two lists eludes us. We simply do not have enough data to make clear choices. It may well be that leveret marriages or adoption of children explain the apparent discrepancies. What we can say with some certainty is, neither of the gospel writers are simply pulling their lists out of thin air. They must have followed sources that were available to them, sources they judged to be worthy. Second, the theological purpose of Matthew and Luke in the manner in which they construct their list seems evident. Matthew wants to emphasize the connection to Abraham and David, showing Yeshua to be the one through whom the covenant promises are realized. Luke wants to demonstrate that Yeshua is truly human, that he came not as some aberration, but as the incarnate one who partakes of humanity as a son of Adam. You know, we have a difficulty with this in our day, and they definitely had a difficulty with it in Paul's day. And that was this idea that Yeshua is truly man, truly human. We have made him such a, uh, uh, a Hollywood figure on the silver screen that we, we don't realize that he was common man. You would not have noticed him any different than any other man in his, in his surroundings. You would not have been, if you'd gone into a, a, the city of Jerusalem with a crowd and somebody said, pick out uh, Yeshua, you wouldn't have been able to pick him out unless you had, had had a previous knowledge of him. You just wouldn't. Now, you might have been able, if you'd have spent time talking with him, even if you didn't know it was him, you might have gone away saying, man, who was that? I mean, you know, but he didn't look any different. And there were pious men of his day. So he, he was truly man. And that, that boggles our minds. How can the creator of the universe, the one that we worship, the one that we call the Lord, how could he be just a common man? I mean, those of you that are mothers, you, you have to have thought. What would it be like, excuse me, I'm not being sacrilegious, this is true theology. What would it have been like to change the diapers of Yeshua? 
Yeah, I mean, he needed that. He needed that, right? He came and he was entirely dependent, in a human sense, upon his mother <laughs> to feed him, to take care of him, to protect him. I mean, he couldn't walk. When we stop, when we stop to realize that the, that the mystery of the incarnation is that he is the eternal one, he is the uncreated one, he is the omnipotent one, and yet of his own will and in obedience to his Father, he set the use of those attributes aside in order that he would become man and would forever remain man, forever. I mean, I don't think we even begin to grasp the depth of what that means, that he would forever take on the form of a man for all eternity. I've often thought, you know, when the psalmist said that, uh, for we are fearfully and wonderfully made. You know why I think God did that? He could have made us amoebas. He could have. But the reason that he made us fearfully and wonderfully is because he knew his son was going to have a body a human soul. We were fashioned in His image so that His Son could partake of that. It all comes down to Yeshua. And um, yeah, He was truly man. And that's, that's what Luke wants us to see because he takes the genealogy back to Adam. Matthew wants us to see that this one is the promised Messiah. He is the one that the prophet spoke of. He did come and He did fulfill what the prophet said he would. Contrary to modern Judaism, and even contrary to the Judaisms of his day, some of them said, you know, wait, Rome's still oppressing us. You can't be the Messiah. And this is one of the first things that the anti-missionaries tell us. Say, you know, when the Messiah comes, there's supposed to be peace. There's supposed to be, you know, Israel is to be seen as the true people of God. And look at us now. You know, and the world's turning against Israel again. So your, your Jesus could not be the Messiah. Oh, yes, he could. Oh, yeah, because he's coming again. And the job that he had to do was first and foremost something that related to the justice and the righteousness of God. And only secondly will he come and do the justice and the righteousness of man. So these are the two forks of Matthew and Luke put together. They give us the incarnation. They give us the divine Messiah promised from of old. They give us the human Messiah promised of old together in one person, Yeshua. And so in doing, Luke represents Yeshua as the Savior of mankind, while Matthew emphasizes Yeshua's role as the Messiah of Israel. Neither of these viewpoints contradict each other. The role of Israel's Messiah is not only that he will gather the lost sheep of Israel and save them, but that the salvation he brings to his people will also bring about the salvation of the nations. Okay, somebody do a drum roll. We finished the first verse. <laughs> verse 2. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. So the beginning of Matthew's genealogy has no surprises. The listing of the patriarchs is well known. Matthew begins with Abraham because he wants to emphasize the role of Yeshua as the one who fulfills the covenant made with Abraham and his seed. Of course, you know that modern Judaism and ancient Judaism as well would have said that Abraham was the first Jew. Abraham, of course, was not a Jew. By birth, right? He was from Ur of Chastim. He was Ur of the Chaldees, right? But the, the rabbis say that he is the first Jew. They also say he's the first proselyte. It's hard to proselyte into something that doesn't exist yet. But any, anyway, that's how, the, that's how the rabbis put it. Beginning with Abraham also makes a clear transition to the genealogy from the opening title of his gospel account. I think the first verse is a title. I think that's 
what Matthew wanted us to know his, his gospel by. The title ends with the son of Abraham, and thus Abraham is a fitting starting point for the genealogy. Abraham figures prominently in some of the rabbinic lists as well, and I've given you some. Uh, uh, l- let me explain a, a little bit what goes on here. If there's an M period before a reference, it means Mishnah. If there is an M-I-D-R-A-B, that stands for Midrash Rabbah. Okay, and I'll, I'll note other things as we go along. These other references are to uh, uh, extra-canonical books, 1 Maccabees, 1 Enoch, and 4 Ezra. As noted above, placing Abraham as the first in the list also makes David's name occupy the 14th position. Likewise, Abraham was considered a king by some of the rabbis. Thus, Matthew's list begins, oh, I should explain that. If it begins with a B, that stands for Babylonian Talmud, or the Bavli. So if you're interested in looking these up... Uh, that's how you would do it. Thus, Matthew's list begins and ends with a king, right? Begins with Abraham, who was a king, according to the rabbis. Ends with Yeshua, who was king. Likewise, in Midrash Rabbah, Numbers on 13.14, Abraham heads the list of David's royal line. So this is, the more I study this section, and I'm sure it will be throughout the gospel, it's amazing how, how much in concert Matthew is with the rabbis. They're using the same terminology and the same ways of talking. Judah is singled out on the basis of Genesis 49.10. You remember Genesis 49.10? It says, The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruling staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. The Targum, everybody know what the Targum is? The Targums were the Aramaic translations of the Hebrew scriptures made for the exiles when they returned from Babylon because they had forgotten their Hebrew and could not read the Tanakh. So it was translated by Ezra and others, at least this is the tradition, translated by Ezra and others into Aramaic, and that's called the Targums. Targum Onkelos reads, The ruler shall never depart from the house of Judah, nor the scribe from his children's children forevermore, until Messiah comes, whose is the kingdom, and him shall the nations obey. So remember, this is the promise that was made to Judah by Jacob. Targum Yerushalami, another Targum reads, King shall not cease from the house of Judah, nor scribes who teach the Torah from his children's children, until the time of the coming of King Messiah, to whom belongs the kingdom, and to whom all dominions of the earth shall become subservient. How beautiful is he, the King Messiah, who is destined to arise from the house of Judah. We should also note, of course, that Hebrews 7.14 says our Lord was descended from Judah, and, of course, Luke agrees. So... It's understandable why uh, he would start with, uh, he would go from Abraham to Isaac and Isaac to Jacob and Jacob to Judah. He is narrowing the promise down to the families that God has chosen. This teaching is one of the 218 audio sessions found in the five-volume teaching series titled A Commentary on the Gospel of Matthew by Tim Haig from Tor Resource. This product is the fruit of over three years of studying and teaching through the Gospel of Matthew, verse by verse, and from a Messianic perspective. The five-volume set is available in softcover book or digitally as PDF files. To order your copy today, visit TorResource.com.
Matthew writes, Judah and his brothers. Why include his brothers? This may well emphasize that Judah was not the firstborn, and and one would expect that the royal line would come through the firstborn. But this highlights a repeated motif in the early patriarchal narratives, namely that the secondborn is divinely chosen over the firstborn. The point of this is that the appointed son does not gain his position through the natural course of events, but through the divine election of God. And this is a huge issue when it comes... You you know, Yeshua is called the chosen of God. Why? Because he does not gain his position by lineage. Now, I grant it. He is of the tribe of Judah, so he has the royal line. But he is not a priest by lineage of Levite. Right? He gains that through divine appointment. The same way Melchizedek was divinely appointed, apparently, as a king, because he... He was not related, obviously, to Levi. <laughs> All right. So, he does not gain his position through natural course of events, but through God's sovereign election. In similar fashion, Matthew mentions Zerah along with Perez in verse 3, and Jokaniah and his brothers in verse 11. Again, in each of these cases, divine selection is emphasized. In this way, Matthew's listing is not merely a genealogy, but, as one commentator has put it, a resume of salvation history. Each one of these that were chosen to be part of the line of Yeshua were divinely chosen. It wasn't just a happenstance. It was what God was determining should be in order to bring his son. See how fast we went through verse 2? Verse 3. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron and Hezron the father of Ram. And I put in square brackets Aram because that's what all the Greek texts have. Peretz and Zerach were the twin sons of Judah and Tamar. You remember the story, right? Judah was out in the lambing season, and uh, they'd worked hard in the roundup, and it was time to go into the town and party. And uh, he was not being a righteous man. And there were plenty of temple prostitutes around. And the society would not have thought anything for a man to have uh, visited the temple prostitutes. They would have considered that to be a, a worthy thing to do. And so Tamar, who uh, should have had a Leverite marriage and um, uh, twice sons were, were uh, uh, given and uh, they died. And so... Uh, uh, he refused to give the third one, or at least that's the way it, the text seems to say. So she dresses herself up as one of these temple prostitutes, and uh, as the Hebrew text would indicate. And sure enough, Judah comes along, and he's willing to uh, pay her price. Of course, he doesn't realize how heavy that price was going to be. And uh, so uh, he... Uh, he lays with her, and she conceives twins. And, of course, it was the, the, the signet, right, and the staff that was given. Before, you know, the ATM wasn't working. And so um, he gave uh, the pledges and then had to go back to get the lambs uh, and that he had promised uh, from the flock for her, for her fee. Of course, when he comes back, she's nowhere to be found. And when he discovers that Tamar is uh, pregnant, he says, burn her because she's acted as a harlot and then she produces the signs that he had left Um, out of all of that sordid kind of thing that's the kind of thing that Hollywood makes movies out of right out of all of that sordid kind of thing comes our Messiah 
Wouldn't you have thought, you know, if the Catholic Church had been in charge of this, this genealogy would have been entirely uh, sanitized, right? What does it teach us? It teaches us this, that the Messiah was going to come through the normal uh, 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 chain of events with regard to genealogies into a fallen world brought by fallen people. That in itself should cause us to wonder at the incarnation. Okay, they were twin brothers. Perez means to split or make a breach, to break through or out. The name derives from the fact that though Zerah first extended his hand in the birthing process, which, by the way, I've read in a couple commentators, some of the liberal commentators say that's an impossibility, that uh, obstetricians would say, no, when you have twins, that's an impossibility. Well, I've read in other sources that it's not, a, it's not an impossibility and that, in fact, it's been recorded as happening in other times. Um, so, um, you know, you have a... Uh, you have a breach baby, you have twins, one breach and, and, and one normal, and, and, and different things can happen. Anyway, uh, according to the text, Zerah extended his hand out in the birthing process, but Perez was actually born first. When Zerah's hand appeared, the midwife attached a scarlet thread in order to identify the one who had come out of the womb first. Isn't it interesting that you have Tamar, who is... Uh, acting as a woman of the night and there's a scarlet thread uh, attached to, to, to the birthing of her children and if you have another uh, uh, woman of the night who's coming up in our genealogy here who also used a scarlet thread Rahab, right, Rahab but Perez however actually came out ahead of his brother and it was noted that he had broken out in first place and thus was given the name Perez. Zarach means to arise, shine, or to come forth. And in Isaiah, it means sunrise. Thus, even though Zarah appeared first, even though he broke forth first, Perez was given priority in birth. Here, once again, however, the motif of the secondborn is noted. Zarah, in having appeared first, was legally firstborn. In other words, he first broke the womb. He first came out of the womb with a hand. They tied the scarlet thread on and said, that's the firstborn. And he was the firstborn, even though Perez came out ahead of him. Yet the chosen one through whom the promised seed son would come was legally the secondborn. We see this time and time again. Why? Because God delights to do that. He delights to do that. If you think you're in second place, okay, God delights to put you in first place. Those who are first will be last. And those who are last will be first. What is that? That's the heart of humility. That's the heart of humbleness to say, Lord, I don't need to defend myself. I don't need to crawl over other people. I don't need to do that. You take care of that. I'll walk carefully and as righteously as I'm able by your strength before you. And I'll leave the finish line to you. Baruch Hashem. Right? I mean, he's the one that is at the finish line. He's going to give us the, the final tally. I'm riding on the shoulders of Yeshua. As noted above, the mention of Tamar in the genealogy may well stress the divine prerogative of using Gentile women in the line of Messiah. While Matthew will emphasize the priority of Yeshua's mission to the lost sheep of Israel, he nonetheless also has a strong underlying message of the ingathering of the Gentiles as a result of the Messiah's appearance and mission. Um, uh, I don't think Daniel will ever be listening to these tapes, but Daniel, I'm not talking behind your back, but when, uh, when Daniel Lancaster was... Um, 
editing and, and critiquing my book, the first book that I wrote on Paul, he was just astounded that I would take such a, a, a strong position that the Gospels opened the way for the Gentiles because, as I've noted here in 10.6 and 15.24, Yeshua says to his disciples, do not go to the Gentiles, go only to the lost house of Israel. But what I see in the book of Matthew, which emphasizes more than any of the Gospels, Yeshua's uh, direction and mission to the lost sheep of Israel, what I see in Matthew is a continual underlying theme of, and the Gentiles are coming as well. And I think that's why we have these women listed here. The sages also comment on the genealogy of Messiah through Perez. Rabbi Yochanan replied, Scripture stated, And when Saul saw David go forth against the Philistine, he said to Avner, the captain of the host, Avner, whose son is this youth? And Avner said, As thy soul liveth, O king, I cannot tell. But did he not know him? You understand the problem? I mean, the chapter before, David's in Saul's court. He's playing music for him. Saul's giving him gifts. Well, anyway. Did he not know him? Surely it is written, and he loved him greatly and became his armor bearer. That's in chapter 16 of 1 Samuel, as 17 is the Goliath story. He made, he rather made the inquiry concerning his father, but did he not know his father? Surely it is written, and the man was an old man in the days of Saul, stricken in years among them. And Rav, or it might be said, Rabbi Abba, stated that this referred to the father of David, Jesse, who came in with an army and went out with an army. It is this that Saul meant, whether he descended from Perez or from Zerah. If he descended from Perez, he would be a king. For a king breaks forth for himself away, and no one can hinder him. If, however, he is descended from Zerah, he would only be an important man. So very early on, the rabbis are saying it's very important that the Messiah come from Perez. Now, how old is this? This is Babylonian Talmud, so it's 3rd century. But does it have an... Uh, the, uh, Rabbi Abba is earlier. And were they talking about this too, apparently so. Similarly, the sages find a messianic reference in Micah 2.13. The breaker, and it's the word haporetz, it's from the same word as Perez, goes up before them. They break out, pass through the gate, and go out by it. So their king goes on before them, and Adonai at their head. And so basically the rabbis took the word the breaker in Micah 2.13 to be a name of the Messiah, connecting it to Perez. Hezron carries the lineage of the tribe of Judah and should not be confused with another Hezron who gave his name to a clan of Reuben. It seems clear that there were different versions of the name Ram. Okay, we come to this last one in verse 3. It says, uh, Hezron, the father of Ram. All of the Greek manuscripts of Matthew have Aram. But many of the English translations have Ram in order to conform to the usage of the MT, which stands for Masoretic Text of First Chronicles 2.9 and Ruth 4.19. By the way, open up your Bibles to Matthew 1.3 and just, is there anybody, any of your versions that you have with you that has Aram rather than Ram? I didn't check the King James Version. wouldn't surprise me if the King James Version had uh, has Aram. Ram. Yeah, so even the King James Version changed it. And which one is yours? It's uh, Young's. Young's, well, yeah, Young's, okay. Yeah, Young, yeah, if you have a very literal translation, it'll say Aram, because almost all the manuscripts have Aram. So why did they change it to Ram? Well, because if you go back and read in the uh, Tanakh, it's definitely Aram, not Aram. In First Chronicles 2, 9, the empty list, three sons of Hezron, Yeramil, Ram, and Cheluvai. 
And I list, uh, uh, I list them for you there. The Septuagint adds a fourth, Aram, and makes him not Ram, the father of Aminadav. The Septuagint of Ruth 4.19 has Aran, changing the Mem to Anun, which is not uncharacteristic in some cases. And Luke has Arni. So there's, your, there's the only Arni in, in uh, Scripture right there. If your father's name is Arni, that's... It seems clear that Matthew follows the text of uh, the Septuagint of 1 Chronicles 2.9, or else he had knowledge of a Hebrew text from which the Septuagint was translated, which was later lost to the Masoretes. It, it, uh, I'm not too concerned about the... Um, spelling of these names. Aram and Ram are very, very close. So um, we know this from when we had our Russian friends come and, and, be, and go through naturalization process. Their names were always spelled differently, even even husband and wife sometimes spelled differently because they were foreign names and the English uh, clerks didn't know how to spell them. All right, Ram was the father, or Aram was the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nahon, Nahshon the father of Zalman. Again, uh, Matthew follows First Chronicles. We won't belabor this. Uh, Aminadab was the father of Elisheva, the, the wife of Aaron. Aaron. At this point in the genealogy, Luke adds a name otherwise unknown. He makes Admin the father of Aminadab rather than Ram. This is supported neither by the Hebrew text, Masoretic text, or the Septuagint. However, it is possible that Luke records a generation otherwise skipped by the chronicler and author of Ruth. We know that both of them have skipped generations. Nachshon is listed as the leader of the tribe of Judah. The sages taught that Nachshon was the first to enter the open sea at the Exodus when all others were fearful to proceed. Uh, the, the rabbis have a cute little story that, you know, Moses holds out his staff and the water opens up and it, Moses says, let's go. And everybody said, not on your life. Nobody wanted to go across, according to the rabbis, except for uh, Nachshon, who was the leader of the tribe of Judah at that time. Solomon, whose name occurs only in geneal- genealogical lists, has various spellings. I give them for you there for those of you that are into that kind of minutiae. The Peshitta, by the way, is the Syriac translation of the Bible. Semitic language, but with a different script and, and more akin to Aramaic than it is to Hebrew. Verse 5, Solomon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse. The name Boaz, which means strength, is spelled in the Septuagint differently. The Midrash notes that three men overcame their passions, their evil inclinations, through the taking of an oath, Joseph, David, and Boaz. In the case of Boaz, the sages say, as, as the Lord lives, lie down until morning. That's what he told Ruth to do, right? Yet he had no relations with her, though they were both single and seeking a spouse. According to the Targum on First Chronicles 4.22, Boaz was master of the scholars in the Academy of Bethlehem. So Boaz figures uh, prominently in the, in the uh, rabbinic literature. So they say, how did Boaz uh, keep himself uh, chaste during that night when Ruth spent the night at his feet? He took an oath. He said, as the Lord lives. So the rabbis are saying, this was some kind of a man who took an oath before God and maintained it in, in, in the course of probably difficult passions. Matthew has Solomon wed to Rahab, uh, Rahab, who was the harlot of Jericho. The spelling of Rahab, again, I give you some of that. Um, and for those of you that are interested, and I'm skipping some of this because I know it's quite technical. Top of page 27. 
The rabbinic literature has Joshua as the husband of Rechav, not Zalman. And the sages remarked that Joshua had only one son, but that he had other daughters. In fact, there are no biblical parallels to suggest that Boaz was the son of Zalman and Rechav. Indeed, in the chronology of the Tanakh, Rachav and Zalman are separated by nearly 200 years. So it seems almost impossible that Zalman uh, married Rahab. Some have suggested the possibility that the phrase out of Rahab or by Rahab should be understood as meaning that the line came through Rahab, not that Solomon and Rahab were husband and wife. Either this is the case here or else the Rahab mentioned here is not the Rahab of Jericho, though this seems unlikely. I give you in the side column some of the reasons, some of the, the uh, chronology so that you can see how it works, how it doesn't work. I don't have a good suggestion. For, I don't have a good explanation for that. Um, I suppose it's possible, uh, well, clearly it's possible that our chronologies are off. Chronologies are a tentative thing. We all know that. Well, what do the sages have to say about Rahab? They reason that uh, she must have become a, become a proselyte. She is considered one of the four most beautiful women in the world, though her beauty was used in a seductive way initially. Likewise, the sages teach that the Spirit of God rested upon Rahab and that ten prophets were descended from her. Ruth is likewise reckoned as becoming part of Israel by the sages, that is, becoming a proselyte. Rabbi Eliezer further stated, What is meant by the text, and in thee shall the families of the earth be blessed? The Holy One, blessed be he, said to Abraham, I have two goodly shoots to engraft on you, Ruth the Moabitess and Naamah the Ammonitess. I think that's very interesting language in light of Paul's uh, analogy of grafting Gentiles into the tree. So apparently he wasn't the first one to come up with that idea that you have uh, Ruth, who is a, a Gentile, and Naamah, who is an, uh, from Ammon, Ammonitis, uh, grafted into Abraham. The sages felt the, difficult, the difficulty, I should say, presented by the fact that the lineage of King David came through a Moabite, since the Torah prohibits the descendants of Moab from entering the assembly of the Lord. Right? Remember Deuteronomy 23.3? No descendant of, the Moabite, of a Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord. They solved the problem by noting that the Torah prohibits a Moabite, but not a Moabitess. Doeg the Edomite then said to him, Instead of inquiring whether he, that is David, is fit to be king or not, inquire, rather, whether he is permitted to enter the assembly or not. In other words, the question is not whether David should be king or not. The question is whether he should even be admitted into the people of Israel because his lineage is from a Moabitess. Because he is descended from Ruth the Moabitess, said Abner to him. We learned an Ammonite, but not an Ammonitess, a Moabite, but not a Moabitess. Indeed, the sages considered Ruth the mother of kings and an ancestress of the Messiah. So too you find with Ruth the Moabite. What did she say to her mother-in-law? Your people will be my people and your God my God. Where you die, there I shall die. The omnipresent said to her, you have not lost. Lo, kingship will be yours in this world and yours in the world to come. Again in Midrash Rabbah Genesis, and she called his name Seth, for God hath appointed me another seed. Rabbi Tanchuma said in the name of Shmuel Chozit, we're not sure if that's actually what Chozit means, but anyway, she hinted at the seed which would arise from another source, that is, from non Jewish stock, understood to be Ruth, that is, the King Messiah. Judah is my scepter. This is from uh, Midrash Rabbah uh, Numbers. 
Judah is my scepter alludes to the great redeemer who is to be a descendant of the grandchildren of David. Moab is my washpot. What is the meaning of this expression? God meant to say, even when the aforementioned redeemer shall have come, I will not offer to assist them until the Moabitess, that is Ruth, shall come with them. So, no wonder uh, Matthew uh, wants to include Ruth. In his day, it was well known that the Messiah would come uh, through the lineage of Ruth. David is known as the son of Jesse throughout the scriptures. I give you several scriptures there. Moreover, the stump or root of Jesse became a messianic title based upon Isaiah 11, 1 and 10. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. Then in that day, the nations will resort to the root of Jesse who will stand as a signal for the peoples and his resting place will be glorious. The Targum on Isaiah 11.1 reads, A king will go forth from the sons of Jesse, and Messiah will increase from the sons of his sons. Likewise, the Midrash on Psalm 21.1-2 reads, For the leader, a psalm of David, the king shall joy in thy strength, O Lord. These words are to be read in the light of what Scripture says elsewhere, In that day there shall be a root of Jesse, which shall stand for an ensign of the peoples, unto him shall the nation seek. That is, seek the king Messiah, David's son, who will remain hidden until the time of redemption. You know, it, it flabbergasts me that in modern Judaism, particularly in modern Orthodox Judaism, when we bring these verses up to people, they say, no, no, we never believed that that was talking about Messiah. No, that's just the Christian church that did that. The, the more you read the rabbinic literature, the more you see that the very verses that were used by the apostles to prove that Yeshua is Messiah were being used by ancient sages to say this is talking about Messiah. It's in the Targumim, it's in the Midrashim, it's even in the Halakhic literature. We see the use of the Messianic title in the 15th blessing of the Shemone Esrei. The sprout of David, your servant, speedily caused to flourish and exalt his power with your deliverance. For your deliverance we hope all day. Blessed are you, Adonai, who causes to sprout the power of salvation. Now here we see a transition. In, in, in Isaiah, it's the, it's the root of Jesse. It's the sprout of Jesse. Now in the Shemone Esrei, it's the sprout of David, because David was not going to be the final Messiah or the final king. It was going to be someone who descended from David. Here Isaiah's words, stem of Jesse and root of Jesse, are interpreted as the sprout of David. In the Didache, which is a early Christian, well, should we call it Christian? I don't know. Um, followers of Yeshua document, uh, 90 to 120, we read in the so-called uh, blessing before the Eucharist, the holy vine of David, your servant. So here it's taken even another uh, step forward. The messianic interpretation of the sprout or shoot imagery, shoot of David, is specifically applied to Yeshua. And probably on the analogy of John 15, I am the vine, you are the branches. So now the shoot becomes a vine. Are you into genealogies? Can you stick with me for about five more minutes? Any questions so far? Yeah. Verse 6. Jesse was the father of David, the king. David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba, who had been the wife of Uriah. The Tanakh refers to David as Melech David several times. I mean, many, many times, but I give you a few. As well as the rabbinic literature. As noted above, it is clearly Matthew's intention to show that Yeshua is descended from the Davidic line. For as the Messiah, he reigns upon the throne of David in fulfillment of the Davidic promise. This was Peter's message in Acts 2. And he probably was standing not too far from the historical site of the, of the tomb of David. He said, I can tell you for certain that David's bones are here with us. So when, who was, of whom was he saying, you will not let my, my body see corruption? 
you know, Peter's message is, well, he was talking about the Messiah. And because the resurrection of the Messiah, the promise made to David that there would always be one of his seed sitting upon the throne has been fulfilled. And so what was the reality of the apostles was that the coming of the Messiah and the death and resurrection and ascension was the fulfillment of the Davidic promise. That indeed, one of the seed of Judah was forever to sit on the throne of Israel. And he's reigning today, and he'll come and reign upon this earth. Matthew has the line of Yeshua come through Solomon. It is here that the genealogy given by Luke diverges. He brings Yeshua's line through Nathan, another son of David. As noted above, the family of Nathan was understood as sharing the royal throne of David. And it may have been that a Leverite marriage occurred between the families of Solomon and Nathan, though this is only speculative. Regardless, both Matthew and Luke list their genealogies as they knew them from their sources. Matthew once again brings in the matriarchal side of Yeshua's lineage. <laughs> you know, it's, it's amazing to me in the, in the modern feminist movement, there, there's a, a lot of accusations about the Bible being a, a misogynist and, you know, being, and I'm not saying that the ancient civilizations in many cases weren't. They, they were. But what I find interesting is that you go look in the genealogies in, the, in Chronicles and so forth and you see how many women are listed. It's men, man, 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 man. Matthew has four women listed. And he makes a point of it. Um, I think Matthew was taken with the fact that um, the women were the ones who stuck by Yeshua to the end. I think, I think after the resurrection uh, occurred, uh, the place of women in the believing assembly was recognized to be something of, of a high, high value, more so than perhaps it was before. Women were always recognized of high value at home as mothers and wives and so forth. But to have the women recognized as of high value in the assembly comes about because, you know, all of the guys are up shivering in the upper room and the women are, are hanging out waiting for the Sabbath to get over so they can go in and, and, and uh, uh prepare the body for burial and so forth. All right, the fact that uh, okay, Matthew uh, emphasizes the matriarchal side, noting that David was the father of Solomon and Bathsheba. In so doing, he not only emphasized the central role women played in the lineage of Messiah, culminating, of course, in the virgin birth, but also the divine prerogative in using women of foreign extraction. Since Bathsheba is specifically noted to be the wife of Uriah the Hittite, this brings into question her own status as a native-born Israelite. And it was tradition that Bathsheba was the granddaughter of Ahithophel, and he was probably not of Israelite stock either. The fact that Bathsheba is listed as the wife of Uriah Hittite uh, also brings David's sin into the picture. For not only did David politically master the means by which Uriah was killed in battle, but he also did so for the purpose of taking Uriah's wife. The notice in 1 Kings 15.5, remember that it says uh, David did everything according to God's heart except in the sin of Bathsheba. That notice makes it clear that this was a black mark on the legacy of David's reign. The rabbis, however, are uncomfortable with the notice that David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. Since in the rabbinic theology, the merit of the fathers, Zachut Avotenu, figures predominantly into the favor shown to Israel as a whole, there are many attempts to otherwise explain David's actions with Bathsheba. Do you understand what is meant by the merits of the fathers? The rabbis believe, and it's a little bit difficult to pin this down, but the rabbis believe that, um, that if a father, any father, if he's a very pious, meritorious man, that that will accrue to his children, that God will, will give some of his merit to the children. And so the patriarchs were considered to be some of the most pious 
and matriarchs, the most pious people that lived, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And so Israel constantly would say, the sages would say, even though Israel has been disobedient, God blesses us because of the merits of the fathers. Now, in some ways, that's, that's true. Uh, God tells Abraham in uh, Genesis 22, because you have obeyed me, I will bless you and I will bless your seed and so forth. So there is a sense in which the covenant made with the fathers is, uh, is, is meritorious. But because of that, they don't want to see any black marks on, on David or Abraham or anybody. Um, how, do they, how do they get around it? In Sanhedrin 56a, for instance, the conclusion is reached that David did not sin because it was customary for soldiers to give their wives a bill of divorcement before leaving to battle, making Bathsheba legally free to marry David. You understand why, why the, that, was, that was true. That, that was true. That there were uh, uh, times in the history of the ancient world where it was customary for a, a husband to give a bill of divorcement to his wife. Why? Well, particularly in Israel, uh, the sages had ruled that a woman could not remarry for three years until if the, if the husband was, was uh, found missing, missing in action. Why? Well, he might come back. So anyway, that's how they get around that. But that's that's foolishness. The scriptures are what they are because they they tell both sides of the story. They recognize David to be a man who sinned. But the scriptures themselves do not exonerate David, but rather reveal his sin as well as his repentant heart. For Matthew, the line of Yeshua is comprised of fallen humanity, highlighting at once his own genuine humanity and the very purpose for his coming, that he should, quote, save his people from their sins. Verse 7, Solomon was the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asa, or Asaph, as it is in the Greek text. Rehoboam, of course, was the first king of Judah after the division. He was known for having adopted pagan practices. Abijah, also known as Abijam, is given a negative report by kings, but more favorable report by the chronicler. The older Greek texts of Matthew have Abijah being the father of Asaph, though the English translation correct this to Asa. The Western text family also corrects it. It is possible that Matthew confused the ancestor of the guild of Levitic temple musicians with Asa, the good king of Judah, or that scribes copying the manuscripts mixed the two. It is also possible that the majority text preserves the original meaning and the, the, original te- uh, uh, the original text in this case. Asa, or Asaph, was the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah. We're not going to rush through this because this gets a little sticky, and this is where we'll start uh, next week, okay? Um, But before we close off, are there any questions or comments, any things that you uh, would like to add or points of clarification? Yes, Buzz. When Yochanan the Immerser said, are you the one or should we look for another? And, and you go, you know, if you, if you go down the Essene line of suffering servant, conquering Messiah, suffering Messiah. But is there any chance that he could have been looking at the lineages and wanted some clarification in the lineages? It's possible. It's possible. I mean, um, he had already pointed his finger at somebody else that had an illegitimate marriage, right? That's why he was in prison. Um, So that's possible. You know, they're they're apparently very early on, according to John chapter 8, we get the innuendo, you know, we're not born of fornication, the way implying the way you are. So uh, his, uh, his, his lineage may have been in question right from the beginning. But it appears more that Yochanan was uh, wanting to see a much more a healthy revival. 
you know, I mean, he's out, he's out there baptizing in the, in the Jordan and he says to these Pharisees, why are you coming? You know, you guys aren't doing anything different than you were before. Why are you coming now? Go do works of repentance. And apparently he stayed out in the desert. He was not real happy with what was going on in Jerusalem. So if this, if this Messiah was going to come and shake the things up and bring about a, a true awakening and a revival and bring the kingdom, it wasn't happening. And here he was in jail to boot. Um, it looks like, you know, I think that's more at least how, how, it, would, how it would read. Is like, uh, wait a minute, this isn't the way I thought it was going to happen. Are you the one or should we keep looking for another? And, of course, Yeshua says, the very things that the prophet said the Messiah would do, I'm doing. Right? The lame walk, the blind see, and so forth and so on. So, okay, any other questions? Thank you very much. We'll do this again next week. You've been listening to the Commentary on the Gospel of Matthew podcast with Torah Resource President and Instructor Tim Haig. If you like this teaching and want to hear more, please visit us at TorahResource.com. Join us again next week as Tim takes us through another verse-by-verse lesson in the Gospel of Matthew. 